Speaking of division, <laughs> this world is driven by us versus them. This world is driven by us versus them. You know what I mean by that, right? Everything is a contest. Everything is my people against your people. Uh, how about politics? How, how's that party going on right now? <laughs> us versus them. Race relations, the haves versus the have-nots, religious uh, differences, religious debates, cultural debates, even things as simple as athletics and business, that's us versus them. NFL today, you've got your team, right? It's versus them. Uh, in business, we have all our business, it's versus the competition. So all of life seems to be driven by us versus them. So it's an us versus them paradigm. There's some healthy parts of healthy competition and healthy debate for sure. You don't have opinions, have convictions for sure. But it doesn't mean there has to be sharp divisions that separate each other. Um, now, every once in a while, there's a, a couple of feel-good stories that pop up that kind of warm our hearts. And we think, well, perhaps there's a future that is not so radically divided. Perhaps there's a glimmer of hope. A couple of weeks ago, there was a, a video of, uh, of toddlers embracing on the streets. And it just... It was seen by millions of people. And let's take a look at one news story about it. 26-month-old Maxwell and 27-month-old Finnegan, pure joy at the sight of one another, running to give each other a hug much bigger than their size. The innocence of it all is exactly why it's going viral. They just took off towards each other, and I just got my phone out as quickly as possible and just tried to record it, and they are just too cute together. And cute is an understatement. Michael Cisneros, Maxwell's dad, shot the video. He says he's not normally one to post a lot of private things on Facebook, but explains why he decided to in this case. With all the racism and hate going on, I just think it's a really beautiful video. The reason that it's getting attention because it is with a little black boy and a little white boy. And, you know, but if it can change someone's mind, um, you know, or just change their view on things, you know, then it's totally worth it. At last check, it's gotten over 300 shares and 6,500 views. The comments are mostly positive, but there are some naysayers. Definitely not staged, and it was just a lucky moment, and I got it on camera. And now with all the attention that it's getting, it's just going to be a great story to tell him when he's older. The pint-sized best friends have known each other for over a year now. It's a special relationship, and their parents are good friends as well. Where's Finnegan? I mean, there's not anyone else that comes close to Finnegan's status in Maxwell's eyes. It's great to spread the love and to show people that kind of love and beauty in the world. That's kind of cool, huh? That's very cool. And, and of course, the reason why that's viral is because it is a, a, a black toddler and a white toddler, and they're embracing, and the whole world just kind of needs stuff like that, right? There, there is hope, right? Even if we can't see it and can't feel it, and we turn on the news and we're like, okay, this world's done. There's hope. There really is hope because despite the fact that the world is driven by us and them, there is this sort of, I would say, um, you know, God image inside of us. We're made in the image of God that longs for the things that he longs for. There's a, another image that was very powerful this week, and, and you may know the story. Uh, Amber uh, Geiger was convicted of murdering Botham Jean. Uh, she is the white police officer in Dallas, and she um, says it was mistaken apartment. She thought it was her apartment. Here's this African-American man eating ice cream in his house, and she guns him down. Convicted of murder, sentenced to 10 years. And then um, Botham's brother, um, Brant, asked the judge, can I offer forgiveness to Amber, and can I embrace her? And the judge shockingly says yes, 
that's really not done in a court of law, especially in that situation. The bailiff is right there. You can imagine incredibly nervous. And this image of this embrace took place. And he says, I forgive you for killing my brother. Now, I, I'm not much of a hugger. I'm kind of a sidearm hugger, A-frame hugger. <laughs> right? It's the Christian thing to do. <laughs> a full embrace of your brother's murderer, I forgive you. And it is a, an embrace that lasted 60 seconds. And it, it, it immediately kind of warmed the hearts of the world, but then it did create some understandable controversy, right? Because there's this, now, you're going to get a little tense, but there's this underlying narrative about black and white relationships and justice issues. And so questions start being asked from the black community is why is the black community expected to be gracious, but that grace is rarely returned? What if the roles were reversed? What if it was, what if it was a black intruder who gunned down a white woman? Would there be this kind of a pull for forgiveness? They're just questions. They're just questions. And these are the kinds of questions that really highlight how tense and divisive our country is. And I want to ask you, before you tense up, open up. Because perhaps even when I started going down this road about racial injustice and police and white and black, it's very possible that some of you started tensing up a little bit. And I want to encourage you, if we're going to pursue radical unity, we've got to talk about these kinds of issues. But before you tense up, which is human nature, it's what your brain is wired to do, us versus them, my camp, I'm right, my people, there's, you know, where our brains are wired. Before we tense up, choose, open up, relax, breathe deep breaths. Let's have the maturity to say there are real issues and real divisions in our country, and there's two ways to handle it. We can ignore it. We can retreat into our little enclaves of sameness, or we can do what Jesus did and step into the problems and to bring healing and harmony and unity, right? Let's be that kind of people. Let's be that kind of church. And let's ask ourselves some questions. Ask ourselves some serious questions. Are there any biases in my own life? Do I have a bias? Do I have many biases? What's the answer? Oh, you should answer that fast. You're like, I, I will answer that fast. Treadway, you do have a lot of, <laughs> no, we all do. We all, and, and most of them are blind spots for us because we have our, our particular world. We hang out with our particular people. We have our particular likes and dislikes and we are attracted to the same kind of people as we are. And so we have this little world. It's a bit of a fake world that's sort of small and sort of same. And so, no, we, we, I don't have any biases, right? I, look, I, I'm operating in this world nicely. Well, let's drop you from your nice world and from my nice world into something totally different, and let's see if we have any biases. And the answer is, yes, we all do. We all do. Let, let's try to identify those and learn from those. How can we grow through those? And then to ask ourselves this question, which is the question of, of the series, really, is how can I be an agent of radical unity in a world enslaved by radical division? And to have that sort of uh, self-evaluation and that self-determination to say, I want to be a force, an agent of radical unity in this world. Now, we're going to talk about the book of Revelation in about four weeks, and I'm going to tip my hand a little bit, okay? Revelation is a book about where this world is headed. And you want to know where it's headed? Uh, nuclear bombs and poison and death. Oh, yeah? Revelation 7, 9, and 10. I saw a vast crowd too great to count, from every nation, 
every tribe, every people, every language standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb of God. Uh, what? <laughs> I thought we were going to get a smaller and smaller remnant of super faithful people that are going to be raptured and everything else is going to be burned and I get to spend me and my three friends eternity with Jesus. <laughs> every nation, every tribe, every people, every language standing in front of the throne before the Lamb, all clothed in white robes. You know what that means? The white robe symbolism means made righteous. All made righteous. Holding palm branches in their hands and shouting with a great roar, salvation comes from our God who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. That's our future. That is exciting. Well, what about the rest of Revelation? A lot of that's not very exciting. You know what the, that means? It's just going to be hard. <laughs> it's going to be hard to get there. It's going to be hard to get to radical unity between humankind. It's going to be hard to get to radical unity between the races. It's going to be hard to get all the world to understand how much they are loved by God through Jesus Christ. It's going to be a tough road. And here's where we've gone so far in the story toward radical unity. Uh, four weeks ago, we started with this idea that the old covenant failed to bring radical unity the Old Covenant, which is contained uh, by the Old Testament, failed to bring radical unity. All that did was bring division over blood and religion and war and conquest. Then we talked about Jesus ushering in a new covenant of radical unity. Then we talked about the life of Jesus, modeled radical unity. The teaching of Jesus equips us towards radical unity. And last week we talked about the prayer of Jesus, the one recorded extended prayer of Jesus in John 17. He pleads with his heavenly Father for radical unity. And he ended his prayer in this way. I pray that they will all be one. He's talking about all future believers in him, that they would all be one just as you and I are one, share the same unity that the triune God himself enjoys. May they experience such unity that the world will know, right? This is this wide open door of radical unity. The Father and the Son are radically united. He wants us to experience a radical unity with each other in the same way, and then he wants us to invite the world to experience the radical unity in Christ so that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them just as much as you love me. He's talking about unbelievers here, that the world will know through the radical unity of the church. The church would be so united that the entire world would know that God loves them just as much as he loves Jesus. <laughs> I'm not seeing your face. You're not as wowed as I am. I know you're, you're, you're wowed in here. This is remarkable. But then, of course, since that prayer over 2,000 years, the church has splintered into 40,000 denominational pieces and we're fighting over every little thing, right? Doctrines and styles of worship and who's right and who's wrong and who's moral and who's not. And I mean, it just gets kind of crazy, right? But here's this invitation. It's the invitation that answers the prayer of Jesus to, to be in some respects responsible for answering the prayer of Jesus, to live a life of radical unity. And it starts with our families. If, if your family is in any way torn apart relationally, you can be a bridge to bring radical unity in your family, in your neighborhood. Maybe somebody's, you know, your neighbor's tree is, is, is three quarters of an inch over your property line and is driving you absolutely crazy and you're getting lawyers. Be a bridge builder to your neighbors, even if you don't particularly like them. Strive for radical unity the way Jesus did. Strive for radical unity the way Jesus is equipping us to live. 
Strive for radical unity in your workplace. Radical unity among the races. Build relationships with different ethnicities. Don't just walk around in this little bubble of sameness. I'm telling you, it's a boring life. You just don't know how boring it is. Get outside of a bubble of sameness and and build relationships and deep friendships with people of other races, other religions, other lifestyles. Just open up your life to, to, to be this agent of radical unity. And I've been intentionally walking that journey for probably 15 years. And it's not easy. I mean, there's sometimes I walk into a room and that I maybe kind of kick the door and I just want to be here. I just want to be with a group that's not the same old, you know, white middle class, ex-bourbon, Temecula, you know, Christian. I, I want a bigger world and a broader world. So I, sometimes I get in rooms and I don't feel like I belong at all until I start making a friend and getting to know them, getting to know their stories. And sometimes the most different people by every external metric can become the best of friends just by human relationship. That's the prayer of Jesus. Jesus ends with this incredible prayer of unity, walks outside that upper room, takes his disciples to their campground in the Garden of Gethsemane, Matthew 26, 36. Then Jesus went with them to the olive grove called Gethsemane, and he said, sit here while I go over there to pray. He told his disciples, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. He knows he's facing the cross. Stay here and keep watch with me. This is the Lamb of God that was about to be led away to the slaughter. He went on a little further and bowed with his face to the ground, praying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me, yet I want your will to be done, not mine. I'm going to show you a series of slides from a popular movie about the crucifixion of Christ, and it can be a little graphic. You can look away if you'd like, but I want us to understand the cost that Christ paid to bring radical unity to the world. Radical unity between humankind and God. Radical unity between humankind and one another, right? Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane in agony. Moments later, he is arrested and tried six times for crimes he didn't commit. Why was this person who lived a life of love arrested, tried, and crucified? Because he was trying to put the religious leaders out of business. The religious leader said, hey, if you want to get to God, you have to go through me. I'm a barrier between you and God. You've got to go through me. You've got to go through the rule book. You've got to go through these um, religious exercises, these religious ceremonies, these religious sacrifices. You have to live a moral life. You want to get to God, you've got to get through me, and I will approve of your religion, and I will approve of your morality. And maybe, just maybe, you can get to God. Jesus tried to put them out of business, so yeah, he got in trouble. Jesus was confronting the, the, socio, the social, political, ethnic injustice that Rome was imposing. Here's this invading army of the Roman Empire crushing this little tiny nation of Israel, making the, the poor poorer, enslaving them with debt and taxation. And Jesus was pushing against the Roman Empire, this little Hebrew peasant pushing against the Roman Empire, trying, trying to put their corruption out of business and trying to put the religious leaders out of business. And so, yeah, he got in the face of every single political and religious power, so he got in a lot of trouble. Public enemy number one. It cost him his life. So by offending the religious leaders of Israel with a vision of radical unity with God and by offending the political leaders of Rome, trying to bring equity, trying to bring a sense of of fairness and kindness and provision and freedom to everyone. He's public enemy number one. So on that Passover Thursday, as Jesus and his disciples were camping outside the city, the temple authorities came to arrest Jesus. Overnight, Jesus was tried six times, three times by priests and three times by the Roman authorities. On Friday morning, the religious leaders brought him before Pontius Pilate, 
Pontius Pilate heard the crowds shouting, crucify him, crucify him. They were bloodthirsty. The crowds were bloodthirsty. Pilate found no fault in Jesus, but he was stuck. His only job from the Roman emperor was to keep the peace in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was shouting, crucify Jesus. He says, I wash my hands. I don't find any fault in this man. And so he sent Jesus away to be flogged 39 times by tradition. That's one short of death. But that wasn't enough to satisfy the crowd. So Jesus is then beaten with rods. His beard is pulled out. Pulled out. He is mocked for claiming to be the king of a different kind of kingdom. A crown of thorns was driven into his head. Jesus then carries a heavy crossbeam through the city to the place of Golgotha called the Skull, where the vilest criminals are executed. His wrists are nailed to the crossbeam through the median nerve. His ankles nailed to the center beam through the tibial nerve. At 9 a.m., after trials that lasted through the night, Jesus is stripped naked and lifted on the cross for the whole world to see and left there bleeding to die. Each breath is a torturous effort to open the lungs by pushing up on his feet, then hanging on his hands. For six hours and 4,000 breaths, Jesus suffered on a cross. His crime was simply an insatiable mission to reveal God's love to a lost and broken and hurting world and to bring radical unity between man and God and radical unity with one another. The selflessness of Jesus was so complete that he turns to the one being crucified next to him and says, today you will see me in paradise. At 3 p.m., Jesus shouts out, it is finished, and gave up his spirit. Now we know the history as to why Jesus died. He offended the religious leaders. He offended the political leaders. He walked into Jerusalem willingly knowing that he was going to be tried and tortured and crucified. But what happened on the cross? The cross is the centerpiece of the Christian faith. We have a cross outside and a cross in the West Campus. We are wearing crosses perhaps around our neck or as jewelry. We might have crosses somewhere in our office or in our home. What is the power of the cross? What happened on the cross? Why was the crucifixion necessary? And why is the cross the centerpiece of our faith? And we might have an answer that pops up in our head. And that answer might be something like this. Now, hang with me here. There's going to be a few things I'm going to really ask you to hang with me here. There might be an answer in our head that focuses on the brutality of the cross. The cross was a brutal instrument of torture and bloodshed, and we might focus on that. And and there certainly is a record of sacrifice in the Bible that is very bloody. So we might focus on the blood. We might focus on the torture. We might focus on the cruelty. And we might come to some conclusions that are understandable. And the conclusion essentially says this, that because of what we have done against God, God is full of wrath and anger and vengeance against us, that God demands our torture, God demands our bloodshed, God demands our crucifixion. He is so infuriated by our sin against him that he is just waiting to pour out wrath and vengeance and torture and bloodshed and death upon us But here comes Jesus, and Jesus comes and takes our place and takes the wrath of God upon himself. There's two problems with that narrative. The first problem with that narrative, and it's very popular, it's it's kind of almost the centerpiece of evangelicalism itself, so I'm treading on really interesting ground right now, and I asked you 
to hang around with me, right? It paints God as bloodthirsty. That's what this narrative portrays God as, bloodthirsty. A deity who demands human sacrifice to appease his vengeful wrath against the sins we commit against him. This is not compatible with the teaching of Jesus, and it is not compatible with the teaching of the New Testament. Jesus teaches that God is a loving, heavenly Father. The new covenant contained in the New Testament talks about a new covenant of love, right? Poured out upon us. I'll get to more of that later. But this idea of a, of a vengeful God pouring out wrath, getting even with the sins of mankind by torture, bloodshed, and death, paints God as bloodthirsty. It also reduces the work of Christ to a transaction. In other words, we have a, a, we have a debt that has to be paid, and a, and a transaction has to take place, right? So I owe God my torture, my blood, and my death. I owe that to God. Jesus paid that price, therefore even Stephen with God. And sometimes we take that even further to say, if I sin against God, then I have to go through a whole other religious kind of exercise of confessing my sin, repenting of the sin, uh, you know, being more holy, asking for forgiveness, and I have to do the whole thing over again. So it's a series of transactions that manages my sin and my guilt before God. That's the normal Christian experience. It's a spiritual slavery that paints God as bloodthirsty, and because of my sin, I have to have a transaction to make that sin right. Essentially, here's what it says. That God demands violence and bloodshed and torture because he is enraged by our sin against him. Jesus is violently tortured on the cross to receive the punishment we deserve from an angry God who is now satisfied by blood. That's the normal way of articulating the cross of Christ. Now that makes logical sense under four conditions. That narrative makes logical sense, number one, if we define ourselves by our failure. And anyone who's ever been raised in any religion is defined by failure. We are called sinners from the time we breathe our first breath. You're a sinner, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, you're a sinner. Now have all of us sinned, what's the answer? Yes. <laughs> but that doesn't have to be our core identity. We raise kids in every religion with this core identity, sinner, 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 failure, failure, failure. God is perfect. You are not. Get better. Do better. Be more religious. Be more moral. That is the very definition of religious slavery. So if we define ourselves by our failure, now we bear the guilt of that failure, right? And we know our own guilt. We know our own shame. I guarantee right now, if I were to spend the next hour with you and say, okay, what have you done wrong? And uh, it's just between us. Now, of course, I'll be social media in the whole thing. But <laughs> just between us, where is your guilt and where is your shame? And no doubt you will gush your regrets, your guilt, your shame about the things that you did when you were younger, about the things that you are doing now, the secrets that no one knows about, the weird twisted things that are going on in your head that you are just keeping to your, yourself, the things, as Paul says, you know you should do but aren't doing, the things you know you shouldn't do but you are doing. We all carry this guilt and this shame and this regret with us. We all do. And so when we're told in church and maybe even at home, guilty, 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 sin, 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 shame, 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 we know that and we feel that. And then we hear in church that our failures infuriate God to the point of demanding blood. Imagine that defining our relationship with God. My failures earn blood, torture, death from a vengeful, angry God. Imagine that relationship being defined that way. You don't have to imagine. It's probably happened. 
and that blood is what satisfies God. He wants blood. And that God is motivated by wrath that must be poured out somewhere. And so he's so against us and so kind of violently angry towards us. But here comes Jesus kind of last minute stepping in. He gets all the wrath. He gets all the violence. He gets all the bloodshed. He gets all the torture. The transaction is complete. And, and we're fine until we're not. That's the normal narrative. There's another narrative that I want us to consider. It's a narrative that is much simpler and much more in line, I think, with the teaching of Jesus in the New Testament. You ready for it? For God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son. Isn't that entirely different from the narrative of a bloodthirsty God who demands kind of recompense and get even and somebody's got to be tortured and somebody's got to bleed and somebody's got to die? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Now, you might think, okay, well, does God still take sin seriously? What is the answer? You could say it loud. I'll tell you when I'm tricking you. What's the answer? Does God t- take sin seriously? What's the answer? Yes, thank you very much. I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you a modern day parallel to this, right? Let's, uh, let's call it the opioid crisis. We know about the opioid crisis. It is everywhere. 150 people a day die from opioid addiction. It is a crisis in the United States of America. It hits every town, it hits Temecula, it hits Rancho Community Church. I can name you three, maybe four parents whose kids are addicted to opioids and they're watching their child slowly die of opioid addiction. Do they hate that opioid addiction? What is the answer? Do they hate their son? Do they hate their daughter? Do they wish vengeful wrath upon their son or daughter? No. They want this addiction gone. I mean, and they will do everything to get that addiction gone. They will, they will spend their last dime to see that their kids are off of this drug. They will go into debt. They will go bankrupt to do anything to get their kids off of this addiction. So yes, there's a fierce emotion against this this addiction, but there's never an emotion against their son or against their daughter. Do you understand the the difference here? So when it comes to defining our relationship with God, does God hate how we destroy each other through our selfishness and through our pride and through our greed and through our violence? Does God hate that whole reality? The answer is yes, he does. Here we are made in the image of God, designed for radical unity with God and designed for radical unity with each other. And here we are destroying ourselves by every little piddly thing. And yes, that infuriates God, but he is never wrathful or vengeful against us. God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son. Let's look at the most precise theology about the cross in Paul's letter to the, uh, to the Colossians. Get this, kind of hang on every word here. You were dead because of your sin. This is, a, this, this is a death. It's sort of like a, a son or a daughter who's trapped in the opioid addiction. There's a death there. It's a culture of death. It's a slide to death. And that's the nature of the world. That's, that's the nature of the world who chooses uh, greed and selfishness and violence and power over radical unity. It's death. You were dead because of your sins, because of your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ for he forgave all our sin. Isn't that, that's stark, it's clear that God sees the problem. 
what has happened in the past has not solved the problem. The religious laws, rules, and regulations didn't solve the problem. The old covenant that we talked about didn't solve the problem. The old covenant actually ended up creating more disharmony. Instead of leading people to unity with God and to unity with each other, the old covenant was used then as a weapon to break people apart from God and break people apart from one another. We detailed that a couple weeks ago. So God says, enough of this. I'm going to forgive, and I'm going to forgive as I give my only son. Having canceled out the written code with its regulations that was against us, that stood opposed to us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross. Now follow me carefully. What was nailed to the cross? The code. The written regulations were nailed to the cross. The written regulation that stands to condemn us was nailed to the cross. What is the written code that stands against us? I know you're not going to want to answer this, but it's obvious. What is the written code that stands against us? What is the written code that gives a record of debt of what we owe to God? What is that? It's the Old Covenant contained in the Old Testament. It's the commandments. It's the regulations. It's the moral codes and religious codes codes from the Old Covenant contained in the Old Testament that was nailed to the cross and put to death. Colossians chapter 2. The death of Jesus was the death of the Old Covenant. Because of Jesus Christ, he paid for sin once for all. He is the righteousness of God given to us. God just forgives and he gives us eternal life. He gives it, gives it, gives it. There's no more transaction. There's no more, if you do that, I will do that. No more sin management. No more records of debt. No more religious rules to keep. No more religious days to manage and diets to manage. No more wondering if we're good with God or not. No more wondering if I'm good enough, religious enough, or devoted enough. No more sacrifices required. All the bloodshed of the Old Testament, none of it is required. Jesus took all of it upon himself and he killed the Old Covenant. 2 Corinthians 3.6 The Old Written Covenant ends in What? death. The old covenant never produced life, and the old covenant ends in death. The old covenant ended with the death of Jesus. But under the new covenant, the Spirit gives life. There is not life in law. There's not life in the old covenant. There is life in the Spirit. There is life in Jesus. There is life in love. And so as this poor Hebrew peasant confronted the religious oppression, confronted political oppression, confronted violence and judgmentalism and economic injustice and racism and bias, he confronted apathy towards the poor. All of this pressed against him. Every leader, every powerful person pressed against him. He's enemy number one, and they put him to death, and that's the end of that. That's the end of this new covenant. Let's get back to our old. Let's get back to division. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And here's the kicker. According to Mark 15, 37, Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. What did the veil represent? Separation, guilt, shame. No one can have access to God. No one. That veil is six inches thick, and it is 40 feet high, and no one goes in. God says enough of the old, enough of the transaction, enough of the rules and regulations, enough of the moral management and sin management, enough of the religion, enough, enough, enough. I'm giving my son as an act of love and this thing is getting ripped in half and let the world come in. 
not just the faithful, religiously devout Jew by blood. The whole world can come in to enjoy unconditional love from God and enjoy unconditional acceptance by God. And it can start in your home. Wherever there's division in your home, fix it with unconditional love. You have the power to fix it. I don't care who you are. I don't care if you're four years old. You can fix your home by showing unconditional love. Show unconditional love to your neighbors in your workplace, in your church, with your neighbors among different ethnicities, rich and poor, male and female, with people who are quite different than you. Build those loving bridges. And let's see the radical unity of God. Take root in our lives and take root in our families and root in our church and root in this world. For God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. I'm going to close in a prayer of simple belief. And perhaps you've been in church for a long time, but this is the time the lights went on and you understand the love of God through Christ. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your great love for us, your mercy through Jesus Christ, your son. Thank you for this radical unity that you paid for in full through Jesus Christ. We receive that love freely given. We believe. And because we believe we are one with you only by love, we are are living in the reality of how loved we are. We are living the reality of our forgiveness, the reality of our salvation. And God, we don't just want to receive your love and enjoy that. We want to give it to the world unconditionally and freely. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.